We've been working through Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is the second Gospel in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's been widely accepted as the first written account of the life of Jesus. It was written from Peter's perspective. And it's primarily focused on Jesus as servant king. But he also writes about the kingdom of God here. We're going to talk about that today in discipleship which is very much a part of the kingdom of God. Discipleship, in my experience, has always been an add-on to the Christian life. It's always been an add-on to your salvation, but it never was an add-on. It was always deeply connected to our salvation. And we're going to look at that today. But Mark starts off in verse 1 saying, the beginning of the gospel, and remember that word is euangelion, it could only be used, the term euangelion was the Greek word for glad tidings, but it was very specific. It was a secular term. And so a guy would go stand on the city. They had a little block. He was like the town crier. And he would go, euangelion, 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 glad tidings, glad tidings, gospel, gospel, gospel. And it was when a new emperor was born, when a new emperor was crowned, or when an emperor had won a great military victory. Those were the only times that term would be used. And so Mark starts off his gospel with that. Every Roman Christian would have knew that. Every Roman would have knew that. Every Jew would have known that. And so over the last two weeks, we've been looking at how this new king, this King Jesus, identified with His people through His baptism. He didn't have to be baptized. Oh, He did to fulfill all righteousness, but I mean, He didn't need to to repent of sins. But He identified with His people. He's a different kind of king, and that's what we looked at. But He also intervenes for His people. You know, most kings would not intervene for their people. They certainly wouldn't give their son as a sacrifice for their people, but Jesus laid His life down for His people. And the, the picture is, after He comes up out of the baptism, the water, the heavens are being torn open, symbolizing that, that bridge between man and God that Jesus is going to be. So He intervenes for His people. And then last week, we saw how He ensures hope for His people. He defeats Satan. Satan hit Him with His best shot, and it came up short. He hit Him three times. And we, we looked at that last week. Jesus prevailed and proved that He was worthy to be the Messiah King. And as we looked at the temptations themselves, if you remember, sin, guys, just a little point for us, sin is a valid need met in an invalid way. I mean, it's a valid need. It, I mean, so it's not like we don't feel these things that we're tempted by and we don't need to have those needs met. But when you meet them going around God's plan, it's sin. And so we, we saw that. Well, this week, we're going to look at Mark 1, 14 through 20. And we're going to look at the kingdom gospel. The kingdom gospel, Mark 1, 14 to 20. And, you know, if I handed out a four by six card to everybody here, and I just ask you, I started to do this, but I didn't. I just, I, I just want you to think about this. If I ask you to write the kingdom of God and put a dash and then define it or tell me what it means, 
I doubt very seriously any of us would really be able to articulate what it is because we haven't been taught what it is. At least I never was. I've been in church my whole life. My, I, there's never been a time that I stopped going to church in my lifetime where I was had a pattern of not being in a church somewhere. Ever. Even when I was on a ship, I was going to chapel service. And so I've been part of hearing messages for 60 years. And I don't remember any about the kingdom of God. I wasn't taught about the kingdom of God. I was taught Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You're a sinner. You're going to go to hell if you don't trust in Him. And that was it. And now you're believing. Pray this prayer. Walk this aisle. Get dunked in the water. Now you're part of the kingdom. That was the only time I heard the kingdom mentioned. Now you're part of the kingdom. But nobody ever explained what the kingdom of God was. And so this text today kind of lays out... and. And here's the thing about a kingdom, guys. For a kingdom to exist, you've got to have what? Uh, first, you've got to have a king. What else do you got to have? People or subjects. Boundaries, land. And I, I, rather than land, what I would say is domain. A king rules over an area. And in the Jewish mindset, and I asked a couple of Jews this, what would the kingdom of God, what would a Jew would have heard in that statement? And both of them said, rule and reign. When they heard kingdom of God, they would have thought of being ruled and reigned over by God. That's what they thought. And so, as we look at this text, we're going to look at some different Kingdoms, the way the different, do, I will say not different kingdoms, but domains. And, and we're going to give a, we're going to list them as we kind of go through it. There's seven of them that we're going to look at. We're only going to get through verses 14 and 15 today, but we're going to look at the first kingdom is the heavenly kingdom. It existed before there was ever any kind of earthly kingdom. And, and we know that, and we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. But the second kingdom was the earthly kingdom. And that earthly kingdom, the domain was earth, right? Heavenly kingdom, the domain was where? Heaven. The heavens. Earthly kingdom, the domain is here. But then, we're going to see a promised kingdom. A promised kingdom. And what's the domain there? Well, it's the land of Israel. That's where the promised king was prophesied to come. And it was promised. And we see it was promised way, way, way long ago. Back in the garden, we're going to see that. And then there was a postponed kingdom. When He came, this king that was promised, He was rejected. And so the kingdom was postponed. The domain was supposed to be the world. But it was postponed. But then we're going to see a spiritual kingdom. When that kingdom was rejected, then the spiritual kingdom was revealed. And when the spiritual kingdom came, what was the, what was the domain there? Every tribe and every tongue. Okay, Every 
nation, every ethnic group. That was the domain. And then we're going to see the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, the domain is the earth again, the whole earth. And then we're going to see the eternal kingdom. And what's the domain there? Eternity. It's eternity. For eternity. So, those are the seven kingdoms. A heavenly kingdom, an earthly kingdom, a promised kingdom, a postponed kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, a millennial kingdom, and an eternal kingdom. And so let's read in Mark 1. We're going to read Mark 1, Mark 8, and 1 Corinthians 15. And we're, I just want to read these two verses. We're going to read Mark 1, 14 and 15. Then we're going to jump over. Uh, actually, I'll read Mark 1, 14 through 20. And then we'll jump over to Mark 8, 27. But if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 1, 14 through 20. And it says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing, along, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And they followed him. Flip over to Mark 8. Just a few pages over. And look at Mark 8, verse 27. Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told Him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the euangelion that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. These are the very words of God. He says in verse 14, back in Mark 1, 
after John was arrested. So remember what's happened. You have the baptism, the temptation. This is about six months later. And it says, after John was arrested, during that six months, there was, there was a co-ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist going in the same area of Judea. And remember what happened. You've got to go back to John in the first three chapters to read about it. John 1, 2, and 3, the Gospel of John. But you see, as Jesus' disciples are baptizing people who are wanting to follow the King, John's disciples are going, hey, wait a minute. We're losing guys. They're going over to his church. Remember that? Is that human or what? What's happening, man? We thought you were the guy. Remember he said, that's the Lamb of God. And he says, he must increase. I must what? Decrease. And what happens? God takes him off the scene. He arrests him. Herod arrested him. And a year later, he ends up dying. And so John is gone. Then it says Jesus came to Galilee. After he was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee. Now, Galilee is up in the northern part of Israel. It was an area known as the rabbi area, the rabbi training ground. I never knew that growing up. I I always thought the rabbis were in Jerusalem. But there were more rabbis up there than there were in Jerusalem. There were priests in Jerusalem, but the rabbis trained up there. And by the way, guys, we give Pharisees and rabbis a bad knock. Because there were a lot of good ones. There were a lot. Being a Pharisee, we've always looked at it as a very negative connotation. Right? I mean, if we're honest, growing up, don't be a Pharisee. Well, there were good Pharisees. We don't hear about it. But there were good Pharisees. There were good priests. Joseph of Arimathea. He was a a priest. He was part of the Sanhedrin. And, and yet, he is a disciple. And so, we write off these people, but the rabbis trained up there. In fact, there was a mountain there called, there is a mountain there called Arbel, Mount Arbel, that was called the Rabbi's Mountain, where they would train their students. Jesus goes up there. Why? Because Jerusalem was corrupt, they had gone away from proclaiming the gospel of God. They they proclaim the gospel of works. And what does it say? It says he went up there, uh, back in Mark 1, 14, it says he came to Galilee proclaiming the euangelion. And what does euangelion mean? What? Yeah, he, The king's here. The king's here. Either it's a new king or he's won a great victory, but the king is here. When Jesus is proclaiming the euangelion, guys, we've got to get away from just thinking about your sins are forgiven. It's about the king being here. That's the gospel of God. The king is here. And Jesus, it says, proclaiming the euangelion of God. 
You don't get to change God's message. You proclaim what His message is. You don't get to dilute it. You don't get to omit what you don't like. You proclaim His message. And the writers of the Gospel and even Paul, they're all... Listen, uh, over in um, Romans 1, Paul talks about the euangelion of God. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7, he talks about the euangelion of God. He does that also in uh, Romans 10. 1 Peter and 1 Peter 4, 7 talks about the euangelion of God. And what they're saying is, the King is here, and that's the message God wants you to have. That's the good news of God that the King is here. Does that make sense? In our mindsets, when we think gospel, most of the time we think forgiveness of sin. True? Most of the time we think cross. There's nothing wrong with a cross. That's a part of it. But the king is here, is the euangelion. That's what that word means. And so it says he was proclaiming the euangelion of God. And it is that God forgives sinners. It is that He takes them into His kingdom. And here's the thing that we don't talk about, to be ruled and reigned over. That's the euangelion. You're not brought in to have your sins forgiven. You have your sins forgiven to be brought in. You understand that? But when your mindset is, I'm only brought in to have my sins forgiven, you're like, okay, I'm here. I've done that. Prayed the prayer. Got dunked. I'm good. But imagine what would happen if every believer who follows Jesus had the mindset they were brought into the kingdom. He died on the cross to redeem them, to rule over them and reign over them. I think we'd have a very different church. I think we'd have a very powerful church. I think we'd have a much more influential church for the kingdom if, that, if, if we had that mindset. But we don't understand being ruled by a king in this country. We've never had a king. No, nobody in this room has ever lived that I know of under a king. You might have if you went and lived somewhere else for a while. But in this country, if you lived here, grew up here, you don't understand what it's like to be ruled by a king. You got your rights. I don't want anybody to rule over me. I got my rights. I'll rule over myself. And that's that's deeply impacted us. But listen, in the the Hebrew mindset, in the, in that part of the world, a king's domain is where his will is obeyed. You got that? A king's domain is where his will is obeyed. And so our message from God that we are His herald is to tell people the King has come to redeem you and rule over you. But you don't hear that message. Do you? When's the last time you heard that message? John MacArthur was pitching a few months ago on the radio. Yeah, John MacArthur's one of the few. He's been one of the most influential pastors in my life to teach that aspect. But what we have, guys, in our culture is a lot of gospel distortions. We have the forgiveness-only gospel. 
that's taught in so many places. And that you know what that does? It breeds consumers. Because people just want to have their sins forgiven. They're not thinking about a kingdom mentality. They're only thinking about, okay, I just I want all my sins forgiven for me. In fact, we make it about you. Hey, Jeff, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And, you know, He just wants you to be forgiven. And there's really no mention in there about forgiving you to use you, deploy you. That's separated from that. And that has not been historical, biblical, gospel preaching. And so, that's one. In other countries, you know what they promulgate is the prosperity gospel. Which also makes consumers. And the biggest problem with the church in America is a consumer church. We want to consume. We judge the pastor by what he wears, the way he talks. Instead of listening to the truth of God flow through him, we sit there and we're consumers. So we get to pick everything about it instead of thinking that the king is speaking through this guy. And, and here's the thing. Ben Sobel's and Bill Hull said this in their book, the, the, the Discipleship Gospel. The gospel you preach determines the disciples you make. The euangelion that you're proclaiming determines the disciples that you make. And if you look across our country right now, we see the result of a forgiveness-only gospel and a prosperity gospel. And it's a non-influential church in this country. That's what we see. Yeah, Jeff. Romans where Paul says, if you confess Christ as Lord, that's what he's saying. I mean, it's not saying I confess it. You're, you're confessing that he's no, you're, the king. No, he's the king, and yeah. I'm submissive to him. Yeah, and we've always been talking about, well, if you believe it, and it's easy to get people on you witness to him and say, well, I believe it but to, to actually be willing to confess Christ as their Lord. Yeah, it's not a simple prayer just to pray and receive that. It's, 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 or a temporary change of mind, guys. It is a, it's a life that says, I'm going this direction, I'm leading my own life, and I don't want to go this way anymore, God. I want to go in Your direction, and You're my King. I have a new loyalty. My loyalty is to You. And so... That's the euangelion of God. Verse 15, it says, the time is fulfilled. This is actually what Jesus is saying as He's proclaiming the euangelion. He says, the time is fulfilled. The word time there is not chronos, like clock time or calendar time. It is kairos, which means a specific point in time for a specific event to happen. He's saying the time of my kingdom is now. That's what he's saying there. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's Messiah has come because God's kingdom has come because God's king is here. And he comes to rule and reign. And then what did he say? Repent and believe in the what? Believe in the euangelion. Remember what that word means. It doesn't mean what we probably always thought it meant. It means repent and believe that the King is here to rule me and reign me, reign over me. He redeems me, yes, but He redeems me to rule over me and to reign over me so that I can be deployed as His servant out in the world. 
So to understand the kingdom of God, we got to really understand what is meant by a kingdom. He spoke about the kingdom, guys, over a hundred times in the scriptures. And so we said, for a kingdom, you need a subject, you need a domain, you need subjects. But here's the thing. We said God's kingdom begins before Genesis 1 and it extends after Revelation 22. But the Bible can still help us understand. In Colossians 1.15, it says He created the angels there. And they were in existence before the earth ever came to be. And so uh, Colossians 1.15 and 16, we see the heavenly kingdom talked about there that's the angelic order the creation and what's the domain it's heaven so this is the first kingdom but something happened in the angelic reign reign let me reign realm let me read isaiah real quick isaiah 14 isaiah 14 verse 12 how you are fallen from heaven o day star son of the dawn How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Who's that talking about? Yeah, that's talking about Satan. So even though there was a heavenly kingdom, guess what? There was a fall. And Satan took a third of the angels with him because he questioned God's worthiness to be king. Did you get that? He wanted to be king. He wanted to be the one in charge. And so, what does God do? He creates an earthly kingdom. And we see that in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, he, he made an earthly kingdom where the domain was earth. And listen, listen to this uh, psalm over in Psalm 8, verse 3 of chapter 8 of Psalm. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So man is now made this like under ruler of earth under God's reign. He's the vice regent of earth. But if what happens in Genesis 3? Another fall. We see a fall. And it was there that Adam became a child of wrath rather than a child of God. And you know what's interesting? The same thing Satan wanted for himself He came to Eve and said, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to rule your own life? You'll be just like Him if you eat from that tree. You will be able to make your own calls. You see, from the beginning, Satan didn't want to be ruled and reigned. And Adam and Eve didn't want to be ruled and reigned. 
And that's a problem. You know what's so cool about Genesis 3? It's not a verse or two later that God brings the promised kingdom. When he talks about, listen to this in Genesis 3. You know the verse. Um, Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall... Um, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a prophecy about Jesus. That's the promised kingdom. God is already saying God's going to become human and defeat Satan. He promises how he will do it. It's a little later, you got to read, but he does. How he will do it. He promises when he'll come. He promises what tribe he'll be in. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, you can read that we know he's, he, how he's going to come. He's going to be born, uh, Isaiah 11, Micah 5 2 says he'll be in Bethlehem. Over in Genesis 49 10, we know he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. So all this is is prophesied this promised kingdom and the domain was supposed to be the land of Israel. It was supposed to be. And in verse 15 of Mark 1, we said, Jesus said what? The time is at hand. The time is now for the personal reign of Jesus Messiah over an obedient, obedient and reborn Nation. Why? Because see, Israel with the promised kingdom was supposed to be obeying God. Did they? There was a remnant, but most of them didn't. And so again, they rejected the rule and reign of God. And this postponed kingdom was prophesied. Uh, uh, I mean, it was prophesied in Jeremiah 31 that, hey, I'm going to put a new spirit in you. Nobody's going to need to be taught the law. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And so the plan was that Israel would be repentant. Their sin would be removed. They would be now part of this new covenant. And they would be under the rule and reign of God. And what they did was, instead of having the faith that Abraham had, the faith that David had, they didn't. They replaced that faith with works. With obedience to Jewish law and tradition, they began to focus on the externals. And, they, and so ultimately what ends up happening is they reject the Messiah when, it's come, when He comes. He comes on the scene and they all reject Him. The leaders do. All the leaders, the religious leaders, the one who knew about it, the one who knew the scriptures, they were they reject him just like they rejected Samuel back in First Samuel chapter eight. You remember what's going on? We want a king. The people, we want a king. We want a king, just like everybody else. And Samuel said, "No, no, no." And he intercedes to God, and he goes, "Don't worry, Sam. Samuel. You know what? They're they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me." Guys, when we go tell people about Jesus and they reject you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Him. They don't want to be ruled and reigned over. Just like the people of Israel. Can nations still do that today? Yeah. Can people do that? Can I do that? Can you do that? We don't want to be ruled and reigned over, so I, no, I, you know, I don't want to hear what He's got to say. We reject the people that God sends into our path to say, I am the king. 
And I made you to rule over you, to reign over you, not for my tyranny, but for your good and for the good of others, he says. You see, our problem is we want Eden apart from God's ruling and reigning. That's what Israel did, and we're, we're just no different today. And so what God does is now he, he has this spiritual kingdom. You know, in John 18, when Jesus is about to be crucified, He says, when He's talking about His kingdom, He says, my kingdom is not of what? This world. I could call legions of angels, but my kingdom's not of this world. It's not about geography. It was a mystery. It was in a mystery form. It was a now and not yet form when Jesus came and said that. That's what he said. And so the gospel of God, guys, was about a suffering Messiah. They had their eyes so fixed on what a king would look like that when it looked so radically different from what they were expecting, they rejected it. And here's the thing. Psalm 118 talks about that. The stone that the builders reject becomes the cornerstone. The stone is the Messiah. The builders are the leaders of Israel. And the rejection is the cross. And yet the cross, guys, is the foundation of the church. But it's not just about our forgiveness. It's because now our King is reigning. We're under His leadership. You know, Matthew 21 has a a parable in there Jesus tells. And what it is, it's an owner of a vineyard and his people are out there working the vineyard and he says, okay, bring the fruit. They don't have any fruit. They're not going to give him any fruit. And he says in Matthew 21.43, listen, the kingdom of God, is the term he uses, will be taken from you and given to a people who produce fruit. In other words, I'm going to take the kingdom of God from you and I'm going to give it to people who will let me rule and reign over them. And um, so because of that, you and I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We receive the new covenant. We receive the ability, not because of our own abilities, because we're the best and greatest, to be under grace. We're part of His kingdom now. The kingdom where He rules and reigns. To seek Jesus, guys, is not just to seek forgiveness, it's to seek His kingdom. Matthew 6.33 Seek first, Jesus said, the kingdom of God. That's His rulership. I love 1 Corinthians 1. It gives me a lot of hope. 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Doesn't that make you feel good, Charles? Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so what's the domain of the spiritual kingdom? What does He say in Acts 1.8? You will be my witnesses where? 
in Jerusalem, Judea, yeah, to the ends of the earth, right? All over. And so, that's his domain. Well, we know from Revelation 20 that there's a millennial kingdom too. I'm not gonna, I mean, we're not going to go into it, but there's a thousand year reign. You can go to Revelation 21 through 6 and read about it. And the domain of that is all the earth. It's a thousand year reign of Christ when he returns. But then it talks about an eternal kingdom in Revelation 11 and Revelation 22. An eternal kingdom. And that kingdom domain is eternity, guys, forever and ever, where God's people are obeying Him and letting Him rule, letting Him reign. So how do we get there? How did Jesus say to get there? Repent, believe, and follow. And next week, we're going to get into repent and believe, what he talks about, what he means. Because there's a lot of different versions of repent. So what are takeaways for today, guys? First of all, our servant king has come and called us to his kingdom. Our servant king, which is the best kind of king you could have, our servant king, King Messiah, King Jesus, has come and called us to his kingdom. Second, Our servant king rules and reigns over every aspect of his kingdom, which means he rules over every aspect of my life. You don't get to have a segment of your life that you put over here outside of his reign and outside of his rule. And that's a big, huge, massive problem in the church today. Because what we do is we compartmentalize our life And we say, we're going to let you rule and reign over us as long as we agree with it. See, we treat Him like a constitutional monarchy. You know the difference between an absolute and a constitutional? England has a constitutional monarchy. If if the parliament passes a law, they send it up to Charles to pass it, to sign it. If he doesn't sign it, does it still go into law? It still does, yeah. Because his signature is simply a formality. It's, it's um, symbolic. That's how we treat God. God says, I want you to do this. I can't do this, God. This doesn't fit my calendar. Well, I want you to take your money and I want you to do this. Oh, God, I've got this planned over here. He rules and reigns over every aspect of our life. And when you segment your life any part of it outside of His reign, you're playing God in that area of your life. You're saying, I know better, God, than you. I know better. And you're not letting Him rule. You're not letting Him reign. And when He brings that to your attention, He's wanting you to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And I've had to do that many times and I still have to do it. Because it's easy to do in the world we live. But our servant king rules and reigns over every area. He also rules by His Word. This is how He rules us. It's not through subliminal suggestions. It's through His Word. That's why we have to know His Word. And our servant king has dispatched His ambassadors all over His domain to take help to the hurting. We are to be His ambassadors to a hurting world. And finally, our servant king promises to return. And that ought to give us hope. 
Do we really believe He's coming back? Are we really looking forward to His coming back? Or are we dreading it? We should be looking forward. Our King is coming. I, I, I just want to close with this. I remember watching this old Errol Flynn movie not too long ago. I don't even remember where I was watching it, but it was, it was about Robin Hood. And the king had gone away to fight in the Crusades and his brother took over and was trying to do a lot of bad stuff. And then King Richard came back in disguise. And he pulled back his cloak and everybody knew who it was and they immediately went down to their knees. They were so excited he was back because they loved their king. And I just wonder, if Jesus appeared here, would we fall on our face and be so excited or we'd be terrified? Would we, would we be so terrified because we've not been letting Him rule and reign over us? Guys, this is not a guilt trip. This is about a reality check for us as the church. We need to look in a mirror and say, am I letting Him rule and reign? If there's any area God... Please surface it. I don't want that. Confess it and receive the forgiveness that He offers in the cross because every sin you have ever committed in the past will commit in the future was paid for on that cross and all He wants you to do is let Him rule you and reign over you. That's the message of the kingdom of God. That's what it is. So I hope that encourages you. Uh, I hope that if He's... If he's revealed anything to you, you won't let it go away without dealing with it. So, uh, Jeff, will you pray and close our time in prayer? Father, we thank you for all the many blessings. We thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you and from your word, that your word would guide us and lead us in our daily lives as we move forward. And if any of us have anything on our hearts that we need to confess, Please, Lord, give us, uh, give us a guide to find those things in our hearts and confess them to you as Lord and King of our life. And we thank you again in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.